0: Psalm 80, 1 through 19. To the to the chief musician, set to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, if I get these names wrong, sorry, a psalm, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who, who lead Joseph, Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, Stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God, cause your face face to shine and we shall be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges? so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your... Continence, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved.
1: Thanks, sir. Psalm 80 to the chief musician and the lilies thing again. Do you remember we talked about that a while ago? They didn't know if it was an instrument that was called a lily or if it was just the sweetest of psalms or what the deal was with that lily thing. Different translations use a different word there. But again, it's a testimony of Asaph. Now, Asaph wrote 12 psalms. He wrote Psalm 50 that we covered a few weeks ago. And then he wrote from 73 to 83, which is another 11 psalms. So there's 12 of them total. What we don't know is, was Asaph, go to the next slide once there. You know, we don't know if it's the same Asaph. Like we know from Scripture that David had a musician that he gave lyrics to and he wrote the music. Because it mentions it in the context in the Chronicles and the Kings. Asaph is named in, right in the scripture. But the way these Psalms read, and quite a few of them that this guy Asaph wrote, I mean, it sounds like this was written during the captivity or somewhere between 722 when the northern tribes were captured by Syria and spread all over the planet, or or the known planet at the time, or if it was like in 586 when Judah was then taken up to Babylon. So was he in exile in Babylon, or was he were praying about the northern? We don't know. We don't, I mean, this, this name Asaph means the gatherer to gather things. I mean, this could be like Smith or Jones, you know, for all we know. There could have been a lot of these guys with the same name. We don't know when he wrote it. Now, here's a little quote from Spurgeon. So, the writer could be a later Asaph that we should suppose who had the unhappiness to live like the last minstrel in evil times. If by the... uh, If by the Asaphs of David's day this psalm was written in the spirit of prophecy, for it sings about things that are unknown to David. I mean, David had no idea what this guy was writing about. Because of the hardships that are mentioned in the psalm, it sounds more like he's praying for the regathering of Israel than for some current-day problem that King David was having So if it was the Asaph of David's day, what was he writing about? What was such the big calamity that we needed to call the Almighty in to pull the nation together again? Well, the only thing that I could think of that it might be would be when Absalom overturned the kingdom and kind of had gathered the whole nation on his side against his own father. So, there was that event, so maybe that's when if it was David's Asaph that wrote it, maybe that's what he's writing about. If it was a later one because we know some of the psalms were written later, like psalm one thirty seven we quoted it last week by the rivers of Babylon, you know they asked us to sing, and we did all we could do was cry'cause we all we could do is remember the old country we so psalm one so there's a number of them that were written during you know. The uh, captivity rather than during David's reign. What does that mean? Oh, nothing. Let's go home. (laughs) No, here's the thing. Aren't we all stuck here? Aren't we all sort of like scattered all over the world as, as believers today? Yeah, so there's a principle within the context of this psalm that could teach us That even though life is hard and times are hard, that we need revival. And that's what he talks about revive us and return to us. And oh Lord, please help us. And that's throughout the psalm. And the overlying or underlying principle, either way, is that there was a hardship going on in Israel at the time this was written whether it was early Asaph during David's reign or a later Asaph, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the value of the words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God as men of God wrote the text. So we have before us something that's saying to all of us in a very real way, I need revival. We need revival. The church needs revival. Say, Well, the church, man, we've only been here for six and a half years. Have we gone sour already? But does anybody here feel like this church is perfect? I do. How come y'all aren't raising your hands? <laughs> no, there's always room for improvement, isn't there? I mean, there always is. And it should always be, Lord, let it start with me. Let that revival begin in my own life, my own heart, my own searchings. Let me cry out to you individually to start with. And then help me to lead others to do the same. So the principle is there, and that's what we're going to go through. And we could go on to talk about how the nation needs revival, but I think we're all in tune with that too, more so than we probably want to be. But So let's go to verse 1. He says, give ear. So we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to listen up, Lord, I want you to hear my words, and uh, my words might be acceptable to you. And then he says, O shepherd of Israel. Now, i tell you, there are a lot of um, prophecies and foreshadowings in this psalm, probably more than any of us could ever imagine. The shepherd Okay, the Lord is my shepherd, David said in the Old Testament in Psalm 23. Here he's saying it again. Well, Asaph is saying it, O shepherd of Israel. So what did Jesus say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. So you, the patterns are in there, so we're, I'll point some of them out as we go. But it's the shepherd of Israel, and who did Jesus come to? I have come to the lost sheep of do you think that made the Pharisees excited? He knew exactly what he they knew exactly what he was saying. He's claiming to be this guy here, O Shepherd of Israel. Straight up, I am the good shepherd. I came to the lost sheep of Israel, who led Joseph like a flock. Well, when did he ever lead Joseph? It looked to me like he abandoned Joseph. The poor guy ended up down there in Egypt in jail, suffering for a long time, but eventually was raised up, rescued the family, rescued the whole world. You know the story of Joseph, right? So he led Joseph out of Egypt at some point, 400 years after Joseph. They gathered up Joseph's bones and took him home, back to Canaan. But it was the shepherd of Israel who did that. I thought it was Moses. But Moses was God's man and he led him out. They led them out of Egypt. So Joseph, you could say, was there who dwells between the cherubim. Oh, now, when did he start? When did that start? I suppose you could say it started when God created the cherubim. You know, first angel. You're One here and one there. There we go. And, But biblically, when's the first mention of cherubim in the Bible? Anybody remember? Say it aloud. Genesis 3, you're right. At the end of the chapter, it says that. I think I got it on a a slide. No, I don't. Anyway, and you shall make two cherubims. Wait, back up. Oh, so he drove the man out and placed cherubim at the east side of the garden. Flaming sword. Guard the tree of life, Genesis three. The next mention of cherubim, you know where that is? I got a slide for that one. It's in Exodus, is it? Twenty-five. And you'll make two cherubim of gold. That's on the mercy seat, which sat on top of the ark of the covenant. You remember that? Cool stuff. And then a couple verses later, he says to Moses, "Look, when you get that thing done." That is where I will commune with you intimately. That's what that verse means. You and I are going to sit down at table right there. Now, you get these two angels on top of this mercy seat, and they're looking down and their wings are touching. What goes on the mercy seat between the two angels? Yeah, the sacrifice. They took the blood into the holy place, and the blood was applied where the angels could see it. What was in the ark was the law. And the law had to be fulfilled, and the angels are watching to see that the law inside is fulfilled. And until the blood is applied, isn't that something? You see that imagery? It's all connected, folks. There's a pattern here that's huge. And this is a place where God met with his people. And so the psalmist is crying out, and he's remembering all this. He's just about covered all of history's, or Israel's history here in this one verse. And the number of uh, um, patterns that are being fulfilled just in this one little passage. And you get to the end of that, that passage, and he says, shine forth. And it's almost like, show up, Lord, and do it again. Do you ever feel like that? Lord, just show up and do it again. Man, come on. Bring on the power. Shine. I mean, just show up in a way that redemption wins, that the world sees it, that everybody knows it, that God is still on the throne, and we don't care who's in Washington. You know, we need more of this God thing in our world today. But the world's trying to push him out. Now, here's a... This word shine is used... Three times in Psalms, and then I'll show you all three of them. Out of Zion, Psalm 50, same guy. Asaph wrote that. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Zion is where Christ was crucified. Zion is where he was buried. Zion is where he rose from the dead. It's where he ascended, and when he returns, guess where he's coming back? Zion. When his feet touch the ground again, it's going to be on the Mount of Olives in Zion. Then Psalm eighty, which we're talking about uh, today, shine forth. But the other, the last time it's used, it's used in a way that is talking about vengeance. This shining is a very, very harsh. It's like God, in His fullness of His own brightness, were to show up, we would all be on our faces as though we were dead. That's just a fact. That's the kind of shining we're talking about. This is a full revelation of his appearance, kind of a shining. This is the really, really bright one. This is the blowout thing. you know, this is vengeance. Well, how does that apply to Psalm 50? Well, when Christ was crucified on Calvary's Mount, and God's wrath and judgment was poured out on sin. This was the greatest shining ever. And everyone who sees it and looks to Christ for salvation is looking at the glory of God on full display in a way that we can understand it in a glorious way, in a shining way that the unsaved just don't get. The brightness and the fullness of God is right there. And so the psalmist is writing about this. He said, just shine forth, shine forth. It fits the patterns. But he says, I want you to shine forth before Ephraim. Verse 2, Benjamin and Manasseh. Now, we already mentioned Joseph, and we already mentioned now we mentioned Benjamin. They're full brothers. They are Rachel's children, Jacob's beloved wife. And they're represented right here because Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's children. Joseph is mentioned in verse one. Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned here. When the children of Israel packed up the tent, they got the Levites and the holy guys to take all the holy stuff, and they would load up and go first. And then they would line up three abreast and four deep, all 12 tribes. Well, Levite, the Levites were leading the pack, and so Joseph's two sons made up the difference. One of them represents Joseph, and the other one represents Levi to make up the 12 tribes. So you've got Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. They're the front row when the, when the camp moves. And he's saying, lead us, lead us, lead us. Call these people together. Pack up the camp. Let's go home. Let's go to the promised land. Let's move forward in a new direction. Let's get out of this desert and go to where we want to be, where we long to be. And it's the same cry that we have in the New Testament we talked about last week. Even so, Lord Jesus, come and get us out of here. And at the same time, none of us really want to die or leave. I get that. But if we're going to have to at some point, wouldn't it be good to know the Savior? and to know that we're going home. And there's a sense for a truly born-again Christian, regardless of how much you love this life, because we all do, there's still an element of, I feel like I was created for something better. I feel like this is not my home and I'm just a passing through. I feel like I need to be somewhere else. If this is all there is, it's kind of hopeless. And that's the same cry we have here. These three pack up and lead us home. Stir us up. It basically means open your eyes, your strength. Stir up your strength. The word has to do with a warrior coming into, maybe out of a deep sleep. It's like, Lord, you're the greatest warrior ever. Just open your eyes and focus on our problem here. And they're crying out and asking God to get involved in the mundane, routine, routine, everyday stuff of life and lead us through. Why are we putting up with this today? I mean, everything was going well till the lights went out Thursday night. And the trees all fell over on Brett's house, almost. And then Kenny had some trees down and... Right over here, they're out of power, and their stuff is in the freezer in the basement because we're helping the neighbors. I think it's Brian's daughter, right? Yeah, yeah don't eat the food in the freezer, I'm just saying. <laughs> we're helping people. That's what we do here. So, open your eyes, oh warrior, and set a pace. That word "calm" it's like start taking steps toward salvation. Yeshua. Sound familiar? Now, Joshua's name, Joshua, means Jehovah saves. Salvation, Joshua, and the Greek word is what? Jesus. You see the pattern? Yeah, we're looking to the Lord to save us from these things. So we get to verse 3 Restore us, O Lord, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Cause your face to shine. Well, it's a different word than the one in verse 1. This one is like my candle kind of shine. So if all the lights were out and it was like midnight, and you lit a little candle in here, you could see. But it's not like a really bright illumination. But all God has to do to to, uh, save us, It's just a little bit of a shining. Calvary is probably the greatest work of God on the planet. And it, in a sense, is all we need. And if if it were just a small candle of God's brilliance, it's all we need. Lord, just, just give us a little bit of light. Your smallest amount of light is more than enough to save us. We're not asking for a lot. Do you remember the Sophonician woman in the, in the gospel? But, but even the crumbs fall off the table and feed the dogs. She was a Gentile dog, according to the Jews. And she said that to the Lord. Just, just give me a crumb. Just give me a little sliver of light. Just crack the door. I don't need much, Lord. Just touch the hem of my garment. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. I don't need much. You don't need much of anything if we have Christ. If we have the Lord Jesus in our lives, that's all we need. And if His darkness is brighter than all of man's brightness, that's what we're talking about. The entrance of your word gives a little light, and it helps us simple people to understand. 97, lightning, Man, Dale and I sat out Thursday night and watched it. We had one come down. It just lit up the front porch. It was loud. Woo! Boom! You know, that's one of them heart bumper things. If you'd had a pacemaker, you'd probably have to get it restarted after that one. Man. But as quick and as fast as lightning is, and as much of the earth that it lightens in that moment That's just a short flash of the glory of God compared to who He really is. That's what the psalm is saying. I mean, the Lord can do, He spoke, and it was. I mean, it doesn't take much. And the last verse is talking about Israel when Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh took off and led them. They had a cloud by day to shade them and a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm in the desert. There was a little light. And it was all they needed. So the question for us is in our hardships and our struggles in this world as we're still here, how much do you need? How much light do we need from God to get us through, to save us, to help us along? I don't think it takes much, but the patterns are all there. And the shadows are all there. Now check this out in Second Corinthians. For it was God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There it is. It's all there. It's the same pattern. It's in Calvary... As dark as it was, and the earth and the lights, they all went out. And it was dark for about three hours, it says, I think, in the Scripture. That moment of darkness, the world has smothered the light of the world. Not really. That's the fullness of the glory of God. And when He come out of the grave, boom! Well, the brightness and the glory of salvation that Christ has provided for us, our sins are forgiven. And that light has saved us. Jesus said, John said it of Jesus in John chapter 1, I think it's around verse 4. In Him is the life, and this life is the light of men. He's it. Well, we get to verse 4. <clears throat> it kind of all runs together here, Lord. How long? How long? How long? You've fed us with the bread of tears. We've, we drink the tears in great measure. You've made, strife, made us a strife to our neighbors and enemies. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Same word again. Basically, 7 repeats verse 3. But it doesn't it sound like he's bossing God around? I mean sometimes when I read these, it sounds like He's demanding that God do something, but if you consider if this is the bondage of Babylon, let's say <clears throat> they're calling out for God to deliver them from that exile. But I think what they're really saying in the psalm is this. <clears throat> You're taking care of us, and we deserve everything we have received. We are eating and drinking our own tears because we were the unfaithful ones. And there's plenty of Old Testament scripture to back that idea up. In the Shema, which we won't read, but it says that if you go into the land and you observe everything and you fear God, then your days will be prolonged and everything will be well with you, and that you'll multiply greatly. Then he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God. Love God. Well, they didn't. They started following pagan ideas and pagan rituals and doing things for themselves, and this is where they ended up. And now they're crying out, Lord, we are eating this because we deserve it. This is the consequence of our own behavior. Now... I don't know if any of you have ever suffered consequences of bad decisions, but it seems to me that I've had my share of it. And I'd like to blame other people for them. My wife's the usual suspect. <clears throat> <laughs> because it's just easier for me not to take the rap, right? That's not how it works. Most of you guys who back me up know that it's her fault, Right? Or maybe it's the neighbor's fault or somebody else. But for heaven's sakes, it's not my fault. Even Adam said, well, God, it's you and her. That was his plan. That's why I'm having a hard time here. And we're always trying to blame other people for things. But I think in this psalm, he's really saying, we deserve it. But what we're doing now is, is a confession, a statement of faith. Lord, we're looking for you to restore us and we're going to patiently keep enduring under the weight of whatever this is because we probably deserve it. Now, you don't have to take that attitude of I'm deserving everything I'm getting, but the fact is sometimes we make bad decisions, and sometimes we have to live with the results of those decisions. But don't ever think that God in all of his brilliance and brightness isn't concerned about us in that place at that time. Because he is. And he is the only one who can restore us. And show up with an army. The God of hosts. And cause his face to shine. Like we just read. In the face of Jesus. And then we shall be saved. Come what may. Whether we are delivered from our problems in this life or not. We will be saved from this place. Permanently. And substantially forever, that is going to happen. So eight through sixteen, he starts talking about a vine. You took it out of Egypt, you planted it, and uh, you got rid of all the other nations. Verse nine, you prepared room for this plant. It started to take root in verse ten. It grew and it grew and it grew in verse eleven, and it grew and grew grew some more. In verse 12, he comes up with another question, but why are the hedges broke down? Why did you do that to us? So that all who pass by and the wild hogs are eating the roots out of the ground and there's nothing left to us, but if you return, if you return, Lord. You know, verse 16, it? So we get down to 14. We beseech you, O Lord of hosts, look down from heaven, visit the vine, Verse 15, and the vineyard which your right hand has planted, the branch that you made strong for yourself, is burned with fire and cast down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. That kind of brightness shows up. You seen that flashlight on TV? They turn that thing on and it sets things on fire. That's a pretty bright flashlight. They ain't got nothing on what's happening here. I'm telling you, when the Lord shows up, He is a consuming fire, is what the Scripture tells us. He's a jealous God, and He's not going to put up with the wickedness. But for those who have come to Christ for salvation, just love Him, trust Him, put your faith in Him. We, we don't have to fear that judgment. That judgment was taken for us on the cross. It's done. It's behind us. Moses Warned him in the end of Deuteronomy. He told him, uh, "The Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God, and it's basically what we talked about in uh, Exodus twenty, the Psalms, or the the commandments rather. Um, if you do evil or are a God hater, God's a jealous God. He's not going to put up with it. And he talks about the consuming fire there. When in verse thirty one of that same chapter, I'm just going to tell you what it says." It says, if you just trust the Lord, he will show you mercy. It's the same thing the commandment says, but Moses spends a whole chapter explaining it to him, expanding on this idea. If we just trust the Lord, the mercy is available. And in, in the New Testament area, the era the grace is even greater yet, on top of all the mercy. Now, this vine thing. John 15 Jesus said, "If anyone does not abide in me I'll cast the branch cast out as a branch and is withered and they'll gather them and throw them on the fire and they are burned. Is't it interesting that Jesus is talking about the vine? He says, I am the vine and I am the vine dresser in John 15 and here Israel in this psalm is being compared to the vine. That God brought them out of Egypt and planted them. And the church in this day, we're not Israel, but we are his workmanship. We belong to Christ, and he has planted us in a place where we can grow. And if we uh, turn our backs on him, it seems like we're in a rough spot. I don't know why a born-again Christian would want to turn their back on the Lord, because just those two just don't seem to go together. But in our weaker moments, we do some pretty stupid things, don't we? We probably all have. Now Jesus told a story in Matthew 21 about this vine. He says, "This guy brought a vine, and he hired some people to run it, and then he went away to a far country, and then when harvest was ripe, he sent in some servants. And the people who were working the vineyard for him said, Huh, let's just kill those people. So they did. He sent in a whole bunch of more servants, and they killed them too. Now if I worked for that guy and I was a servant, I'd be a little nervous about going check on the vineyard. (laughs) Just saying. But it was a word story because God himself had planted Israel, said so in this psalm. And now he's quoting this scripture to these Pharisees about how somebody had planted a vineyard and went to check on it. And the person that's going to check on it is the son of man. It comes up in the next verse. But anyway, he comes to check on it. And he says, well, I'll send my own son. Surely they will respect him. And they killed him too. Does that sound familiar? It could be based on Psalm 80. And... 17, it says, Let your hand, O God, in a sense, I mean, that's who we're talking to here, be upon the man of your right hand. Well, we know that that's Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that after he purged us from our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, God on high. And we know that when Stephen was martyred, Stephen looked up into heaven, and who did he see standing by the right hand of the throne of God? It was the Son of Man. That's who he saw. And Jesus himself, when he walked around on earth, talked continually about the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man will. And it just made them mad. They were furious. They understood what he was talking about because of the Old Testament shadows and prophecies and patterns that had been set out for for all to see and to know. But they refused to recognize it. Verse 18, they will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. You see, that's the real attitude of uh, what's going on. The psalmist, I think, is making a confession of faith. We have done wrong. Unless you restore us. Unless you take care of our problem. Unless you fix us. It sounds kind of conditional, doesn't it? but the reality is he was still speaking and looking forward to the time when the Savior would die on the cross and pay for sins. We know that the Lord God has restored. He has revived. He has sent forth his Spirit into the hearts of men and women who put their faith, hope, and love in Christ. So that is, I think, the fullness of this whole psalm. And we... Gather together like Asaph instructed to worship this God. We are in Babylon. We are in the world. We are in Egypt. But there is a God of hosts that loves us. So let's all stand and read the last verse together, and then we'll sing our closing hymn. It's in verse 19. Verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved.
2: I'm forgiven, because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me. Cause you died and rose again I'm forgiven Cause you were forsaken I'm accepted You were condemned His mercy and love die for me, amazing love, I know it's true, it's my joy to honor you, in all I do, I
1: Father, we just thank you for your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're on the throne at the right hand of the God Most High. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And let that light shine abroad in our hearts in the face of Jesus this week as we go, that others might see and take notice that we've been with Christ, that we've been together as Christians. Lord, help us to walk in ways that Share the light, share the love. We just ask that you be with us as we go from this place. Amen.